Hello everyone and welcome to Dairy Pod. I'm Rory McDonald from the Dairy Australia Farm Team and in this week's episode we'll be celebrating the latest Milk Quality Award recipients by talking to renowned mastitis expert Rod Dyson about how farmers can improve their milk quality through better mastitis control. Rod is a Northern Victorian vet surgeon and mastitis advisor who is considered one of the leading experts in Australia on the subject. In a wide-ranging chat, Rod and my Dairy Australia colleague Steph Bullen drill down into the techniques and procedures that can really make a difference to lowering cell count and improving the quality of what milk goes into your vat. If you've got a mastitis problem or, or have had one in the past, then this is a must-listen episode of Dairy Pod. So I'm really excited to be joined today um, by one of my vet colleagues, Dr. Rod Dyson. Um, so welcome to the podcast, Rod. Thanks, Steph. Good to be here. Yeah, pretty excited. This is a topic that's very close to both of our hearts. So um, yes, I'll do my best to um, restrain myself and not bombard you with 20 million questions, but I'm really excited about this discussion. And so Rod, if you were to be working with farmers um, who are sort of wanting to improve on their mastitis or milk quality, what, how, how does that work? What, what, what sort of process would you go through with them? Where would you start? I think we're very fortunate in the Australian dairy industry that uh, Dairy Australia and the Countdown Project have invested so much in the resources and uh, techniques that we can use to uh, look at uh, milk quality on farms. So there's a, a, a range of um, great resources there in both uh, literature and science and also tools and um, techniques for us to look at those things. And so there's a nice little uh, investigation pack developed by uh, Countdown and Dairy Australia, which is the basis of what we use. And so for most investigators working in milk quality, that's a starting point to use that pack and just uh, work your way through step by step. The beauty of using a pack when you're looking at an issue is that um, it makes sure that you don't miss out things and that uh, you, you do a very comprehensive job at looking at uh, what's happening on the farms. So, um, Rod, you just mentioned about uh, sort of following a full comprehensive investigation to, you know, sort of, um, you know, I guess make sure you don't miss anything. Um, we know often when we're sort of struggling a little bit with our mastitis or we um, are looking to improve, we might do try and do simple things like perhaps changing our brand of liners or changing to a different teat disinfection product. Why is it necessary to go through the whole process? I think there's a couple of things there, Steph. I, I think the first thing that we need to realise is that uh, mastitis is a, a multifactorial sort of thing. It's, I don't think I've ever seen a mastitis problem or issue on a farm where it's just been one thing. And so when you sort of realise that there's commonly a number of different factors that are sort of all working together to create the situation, it's pretty important that you identify all of those different uh, factors and then the key thing then is to prioritise the ones that uh, will, are likely to give you the most bang for your buck with uh, dealing with those issues. Um, and what you find too is that as you progressively work through a, um, a comprehensive look at the situation, sometimes you just come across things that you didn't think were likely to be a problem on that farm and there it is, it just pops up and you see it and think, oh gee, I'm glad I looked at all that properly because I would have missed that if I'd just uh, gone straight to it. I often think back to when I was in general practice and you'd be driving into the farm to look at a sick cow. As you drive up to the dairy yard, there's the cow. She'd be standing in the yard or in the race waiting and uh, you'd be casting your eye over and looking at the, oh, I wonder what's wrong with you. And you'd see a couple of things and say, oh yeah, I think I know what's going on there. And lo and behold, when you finally got to look at her and uh, look at her closely, sometimes you'd find, oh, no, actually it isn't that, it's something else. And that if I'd just quickly gone straight to that point, 
I'd have missed something. And uh, I think it's important when we're looking at these issues that we don't miss something. And so I think that's one of the key things about using um, the pack is to be able to and work your way through is to do everything. Certainly with experience of looking at situations, you, you know, uh, sometimes there are areas that uh, stand out for you that don't require as much investigation, but certainly um, as a general rule, it's good to work your way through the whole situation. Yeah, okay. Rod, have you got an example maybe of a farm that you've worked with where you thought, either you or the farmer thought, um, you know, that this, that this was a, the pro what the problem was going to be and in fact it was something completely different that you might be able to share with us? Oh yes, I think one of the one of the great things is the people that change the uh, brand of their teat spray or to a different sort of teat spray. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, teat spray is about teat disinfection and disinfecting the the teat uh, and killing the bacteria on the skin. And we know that all the products that have uh, got the APVMA approval uh, do that job just fine. Um, so I find it hard often to imagine that changing from one brand to another or what is, is going to make a, a, a huge difference because pretty much all approved teat sprays, as long as they're uh, uh, mixed appropriately or they're a ready to use product uh, of good quality, that then they, they work. So changing to a different one is probably unlikely in many situations to make a huge difference as long as there was nothing wrong with the one that you were using in the first place. So I see that quite a bit as an example. Yeah, okay. And that's kind of triggered my interest in another um, uh, individual thing that comes up often, Rod, is, is around changing liners. Um, what's your thoughts on, you know, what about changing to a different type of liner? Ooh, uh, yes, this is uh, opening Pandora's box, this one. Um, the first thing to remember is that uh, there's only one part of the milking machine that actually touches the cow and the cow's teats, and that's the liners. So it has the if you like, the closest relationship to, uh, to the teat. Um, I guess uh, the thing about uh, liners is, first of all, to understand that uh, liners deteriorate as they're used. Um, they have a, a working lifespan, um, and that it's not that they suddenly reach their lifespan and all of a sudden one day they're fine and the next day they're dead. It's just like car tyres. They gradually wear out, and as they get uh, lower and lower, the effect of that wearing out becomes greater and greater. And, as the tyres wear out more, you're more likely to lose grip and you're more likely uh, not to be able to stop in the wet and those sorts of things in your car and it's no different with liners. So progressively things uh, just get worse and worse um, as they deteriorate. I think it's also important to realise that some of the things that we do in the dairy can actually um, impact on that deterioration of liners. We know that uh, chemicals, particularly strong alkalis, etc., will accelerate the deterioration of uh, rubber in rubber liners. And, so if our wash programs are not correctly uh, uh, mixed at correct strengths and those sorts of things, we can accelerate that deterioration. As for changing the, the brand or type of liners, uh, that's a very, uh, a very uh, difficult area to get into. Uh, liner design is, uh, is made of a number of components. It's actually the physical design and measurements of the liners, but it's also the type of rubber and compounds that are actually used. And then it's also dependent on the vacuum and pulsation that's actually used in each individual system. So all of those things uh, impact the way liners work in different sheds. I guess my take home point about that is that every cow's got four milking machine testers and that's their teats. At the end of the day, if the liners are the right liners and everything else is right, you'll have excellent uh, 
teat, uh, teat skin and teat end quality um, and teat end condition. So for me, that's my measure of whether the milking system is uh, performing adequately and the liners are okay, is to actually look at uh, and do an assessment of teat condition. So it's a very basic starting point um, before you launch into thinking of changing liners. It's an area that a uh, little bit of experience and making those assessments can make a big difference to have what you recommend. Yeah, that's great, Rod. So I suppose um, perhaps maybe we could go back a couple of steps if that's okay. Um, what I'm quite, I mean, we've sort of, um, and I, I sort of launched you into talking about liners and teat and health specifically. Um, but when we're thinking about mastitis sort of generally, um, you know, we sort of talk about these two, you know, the, the number of bacteria on the teats is a significant factor and the teat, the health of the teats is, is the other factor. And we've spoken a little bit about um, teat disinfection to kind of reduce the numbers of bacteria on the teats. Um, but this t maintaining teat end health is something else that we've sort of dabbled on and the potential influence of liners on that. What other things could potentially be causing So first of all, what, what issues are we looking for with teat end health problems? And secondly, what are the sort of factors that might be contributing to that? I think that uh, when we stop and think about it and we realise that uh, all mastitis infections, um, except one, uh, all enter the uh, udder via the teat end and the teat canal. Uh, so that pretty much means that the teat end and the teat canal are a critical factor uh, in preventing um, new infections uh, and the condition of the teat end and the teat canal um, will impact the uh, risk to a cow of that cow becoming infected. So the more teat ends that are damaged in any way, then the higher the risk of the individual cow, but also the higher the risk across the herd. So teat, teat assessment and teat scoring is about making an assessment of the proportion of teats in the herd that have actually experienced some sort of damage to those teat ends. And the, teat, the damage to those teat ends will tend to make it the cow a higher risk or that quarter a higher risk of bacteria entering, entering and uh, setting up an infection. So anything that we can do that improves teat skin condition, teat end condition uh, to get that optimal will reduce the risk of mastitis. Uh, and first of all, seeing is that uh, most of teat end damage is probably going to relate to the milking process it's about uh, having our milking machines operating um, at uh, optimally and in the best possible way, and also our milking procedures and having those all operating correctly uh, to try and minimise that risk of damage to the teat end. So for me, that's uh, one of the major things that uh, I always have a look at and uh, then try and make if I see an excessive level of uh, teat end damage. And surprisingly, or unsurprisingly, depending on your point of view, uh, it's... Uh, it's very usual for me to find uh, a significant levels of teat end damage in herds that are experiencing some sort of mastitis problems. It's a, a very common finding. Uh, and that, with that comes the risk of uh, increased uh, risk of mastitis and that's what happens, yeah. I guess the other part about that is that um, removing those bacteria from the teat ends with um, teat disinfection is just a critical thing that every farm should concentrate on getting um, getting right. And teat disinfection, I mean, first of all, it's about making sure that you've got a, a quality product, which if you're using a ready to use product is likely to be of good quality. But if you are going to mix, and uh, we strongly recommend 
against mixing in most situations because that just brings in another risk of getting something wrong with the water quality and those sorts of things on farm. Um, but having a good quality product, the then ensuring that if it is being mixed, it's mixed correctly and then getting it onto the teat in what's the best possible way. And that's firstly by achieving um, uh, as maximum possible coverage of the teat skin. So gold standard is 100% coverage of 100% of teats. Pretty hard to achieve absolute gold standard, but we should be aiming as high as possible. Another thing that people will often forget, and this is a little key thing, particularly in some dairies, is the time taken after the cups come off before we actually apply the teat disinfectant. Because when the cups come off, the, the teat end uh, is still relatively open and remains open for a variable piece of, uh, a variable amount of time from cow to cow. And that one's the teat end is at a great risk of bacteria actually being able to enter the teat canal and set up an infection. So the earlier after we get those um, cups off, as soon as possible after that, we can apply the disinfectant, the best possible effect. So it's um, quite quite interesting. Sometimes we see some interesting things. I saw one long herringbone, which is a single person operator, where they went from, uh, uh, they doubled the size of the shed, went from 13 units to 26 units with, uh, with one operator. And when I timed it, I actually discovered that uh, after cups came off, the way that the milking routine was running there, it was 13 minutes before cows were, before teats were getting a teat disinfectant applied to them. Um, and it was since the change in dairy that this, uh, this uh, farm that had previously had very good milk quality had started to experience a problem. And one of the few changes that we did make was actually to change the milking routine to ensure that teat spray got on a lot quicker. And sometimes you'll find in, um, in rotary dairies where they've got a quite extended rotation time as the cows are trying to eat a substantial amount of grain that cups will come off maybe halfway around the platform. Uh, and it's sometimes quite a long time before the teat disinfectant is actually being applied. So teat disinfectant is about having a good quality product applied with maximum coverage and in a timely manner. I think they're something that every farm uh, can benefit from concentrating on that. Yeah, absolutely. I think they're really good points, um, Rod, just around, you know, just uh, thinking about the way in which you, um, the way in which your milking routine sort of works. One of the, one of the things that um, used to come up occasionally sort of in the works that I was doing was around um, sort of, you know, min trying to minimise over milking and, and ensuring that cows let down, you know, that their let down is good sort of to minimise the, the time that there's a very high vacuum applied to the end of the teat. Have you got any thoughts on that? How common is that as an issue or is it minor relative to teat disinfection, would you say? Um I would probably rank uh, teat disinfection as the single most important thing to get right in the dairy in terms of mastitis control. But uh, for, for sure, the actual issues around uh, milk letdown uh, are probably significantly um, underrated by, by many farms. And I think that, um, yes, we, we need to uh, remember that um, the way that we milk cows here in Australia without uh, the cow preparation that occurs in some other countries means that the cows have no stimulation to their udder often prior to, uh, to cups on and they often haven't let their milk down um, uh, properly by the time the cups that actually go on, which means that the cow then experiences, as you say, the higher vacuum associated with there being no milk flow uh, prior 
to the milk flow starting, which can have an impact at the end of the day on a TDN condition. Um, so yeah, I think that's uh, pretty important and um, common situation there is where you have the cups on operator and a rotary and the cups on operator stands right beside the bridge. So the cow walks on and a few seconds later, bang, the first cups are hitting her teats. Whereas in most Australian dairies, the stimulus for cows to let their milk down, because there's no actual manual handling of teats, the main stimulus is actually the feed drop. And when you look at these dairies, the feed drop is often two or three uh, bales around from where the, the cow steps onto the platform. Uh, so cups are being applied before that, um, that feed let down. And if you stand back and watch in those dairies, um, as long as the cups aren't going on straight away, you'll actually see that when the cows come onto the dairy, I'm um, oh, sorry, onto the, the bridge, the, the first stage of relaxation is when they first step onto the platform and they have their own space and you can almost see that cow relax a little bit there. And then as the feed drops, you can almost just see her take a deep breath and go, oh, that's better. And they start eating and they relax. And if cups go on subsequent to that, you'll then find that milk letdown is, um, is often substantially better. Interestingly enough, when, um, when uh, you have very wet conditions and people start washing and drying teats, of course, that applies a manual stimulation to the teats. What's really interesting there is there's an extra job in the dairy, takes extra time, um, uh, but in actual fact, milking doesn't seem to take any longer. And that's the reason for that is the stimulation causes a much better milk letdown and the cows milk out a whole lot quicker afterwards. Yeah. How, how much faster would they milk out? Like, would it make up? entirely for the time that it would take to wash and dry teats, do you reckon, Rod? Oh, uh, commonly, yes. Yes. Wow. Sometimes, um, yeah, so you can sometimes see that quite, some of the, the, the dairies that have got um, uh, the, uh, the, the, the full um, electronic and um, computer control systems will do reports for you that will actually uh, let you know when milk flow started from individual cows and will give you an assessment of that across the dairy. And um, I've seen some amazing reports and some amazing differences in the actual average milking time. Uh, once you get good letdown, uh, it makes a really significant difference. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Now that we've um, now that we've touched very briefly on pre-milking teat preparation, another um, quick fix that people will often have a go at um, if they're having some troubles is putting on teat disinfection before putting cups on. Can we have a bit of a chat about that, Rod, if you're game? Yeah, I thought you might go there. <laughs> sure, yeah. Tell us what you think. Oh, dear. Um, Pre-milking teat disinfection is a, a very interesting and uh, a slightly thorny topic. So let, let's, this is how I think about it. Pre-milking um, uh, preparation and uh, teat disinfection um, is uh, particularly indicated um, in a couple of circumstances. And it's based on the type of mastitis that the farm is experiencing. Um, and commonly we would recommend pre-milking preparation and or teat disinfection if a cow has a problem, sorry, if a herd has a problem with uh, coliform, E. coli mastitis, or if there's a, a particular problem with um, strep hubris and other environmental bacteria uh, mastitis that's, um, that isn't um, being um, controlled. So they're the situations when we would look at that sort of thing. So pre-milking um, preparation uh, is about um, washing and drying teats prior to the application of, um, of the cups. That's particularly um, can occur in situations where there's a high environmental risk from high levels of mud, or uh, cows that are on a feed pad and getting a lot of manure, et cetera, on their teats. So preparing the teats by washing and drying 
and it's very important that we understand drying is an important part of that process. Um, just to explain that, uh, when you wash teats and leave water on them, what happens is that the teat, if the teat is left wet, the teat is actually quite slippery. So that when you apply, if you apply cups to wet teats, then the liners will immediately crawl to the top of the teat uh, and that will tend to exacerbate uh, teat end damage uh, and other negative part, uh, aspects to the milking. So it's really important that teats are dried. Fundamental rule is if you wash teats, you should be drying them before the cups go on. And Trav, uh, just on that, is there an increased risk to be, that you could potentially mobilise the bacteria? Because it's gonna, all going to run down to the end of the teat too, isn't it, presumably? And that's part of the reason for drying, because uh, drying with uh, single-use paper towels. Another thing you'll see is that um, the actual drying is actually part of the cleaning process as well. It's amazing how many times you'll wash teats with a, with a flow of water and you think they look pretty clean, and then you uh, get your paper towel and you dry them off, and then when you look at the paper, paper towel, you'll see how much more of that uh, dirt and muck that you've actually removed. And so by removing that, um, and by not getting too much water on the udder, which subsequently runs down to the down the teat, then um, yes, you reduce that risk of that contaminated water getting around the teat end during the milking process. So drying is a very important part of that. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so we were talking about um, teat disinfection, Rod. So where does that come into it in terms of this pre-milking teat preparation process? Well, teat, teat uh, sorry, teat Pre-milking teat disinfection has been proven in many countries around the world to be highly effective at helping to prevent um, coliform and E. coli mastitis on farms. Um, in Australia, we don't have as, uh, uh, as many, uh, as high a proportion of coliform mastitis as other countries do in, a, in our sort of more pasture-based system. However, there are herds that are intensively housed and fed where uh, coliform mastitis actually does become a problem. And in that situation, um, the use of uh, pre-milking teat disinfection uh, can be recommended, um, especially if just washing and drying doesn't work. So the full process there to actually use that is that uh, teats need to be washed um, and then uh, the teat allowed to drip dry for a couple of seconds, get the excess water off them, then the teat disinfectant is applied and then that needs to sit on the teats for 30 seconds to get a kill time. And then that needs to be wiped off with a, a single use paper towel or cloth to uh, dry the teat and remove the bulk of that uh, teat disinfectant. So it's actually a quite an onerous process, takes a, a fair bit of time, um, often requires an extra operator in the dairy. One of the things about uh, when we see farms that just squirt uh, teat spray, pre-milking teat spray onto uh, teats, particularly muddy teats is, well, um, I'm not quite sure how they think that the teat spray is actually going to penetrate through the mud to get to the skin underneath, which is where the bacteria are. Uh, they're also creating a wet teat, which leads to the cup crawl issue that we talked about. Um, so they're all important things. And um, also we need to be aware that uh, we're using a product that if we're going to use pre-milking teat disinfection, we should be using a product that's actually registered for that purpose as well. Yeah, okay. And presumably too that, you know, there's a potential risk of obviously higher iodine levels too if it's not getting wiped off before um, the cups are going on too, which we know is a bit of an issue for some of our processes. 
Yeah, and that's part of the, the process of uh, a proper wiping and drying of the teeth will we'll actually remove um, virtually or most of that iodine, yes. Yeah, okay. So essentially what you're saying, Rod, is that um, the, in Australia, there, there is a significantly lower level of herds that it would actually benefit from pre-milking teeth spraying, um, you know, relative to overseas. Um, and if, you, if, it, if, if it is indicated, it needs to be done properly. So, so how would we, you mentioned that herds that have got coliform mastitis um, problems, are, they're the ones where this sort of process um, is more relevant. Um, how would you know what kind of mastitis you've got in your herd? Um, how, how do you know whether it's right for you? Oh yeah, of course. Uh, the way to uh, understand um, the the problem on any farm or what's happening with uh, milk quality and mastitis on farm is to actually understand what um, what bugs and mastitis pathogens are actually involved. And the the best way of doing that is uh, taking milk cultures. Um, milk cultures uh, will actually tell us what the the bacteria causing the problem. I think there's a little thing there around milk cultures to be uh, aware of. Um, if you're having a high level of clinical cases, then you should be taking milk cultures from the clinical cases. If you're having a problem with a high cell count, you should be taking milk cultures from cows that have high cell counts. Uh, it's not uncommon on a farm to see that there's a different uh, pathogen causing clinical cases to what's actually causing cows with chronically high cell counts, and you need to be aware of both of those. Um, PCR testing of uh, milk and of the vat milk um, is really only useful in um, letting us know whether a herd is likely to have a problem with uh, a couple of the key uh, mastitis uh, pathogens like uh, strep agalacti or mycoplasma. Uh, I think it's very important to understand that uh, a PCR test can sometimes come back with some results saying that there's a number of uh, various bacteria that they've detected in the milk. The problem is that that sample has been taken from the vat and the vat is a long way from the cow's teat and there's a lot of potential um, uh, contamination between the teat and the vat that may have contributed to those bugs. So seeing an environmental bacteria um, show up in vat milk well, there's a lot of environment between the teat end and the vat where that may have come from. It doesn't necessarily mean it came from in cows' uh, udders. So there's a PCR testing has a role, but it's important to understand what that role. For the most part, the best way of finding out um, what bacteria are causing the issue is by taking milk cultures. Little uh, hint there too is that uh, if you are concerned about um, E. coli and coliform mastitis, a lot of farms uh, will take these milk samples um, from clinical cases, etc., and pop them into the freezer and then send them off all at once. A uh, little hint there is that um, uh, freezing is, doesn't affect most of our uh, mastitis patterns, but it certainly does affect um, E. coli. And the retrieval rate of uh, E. coli from frozen milk samples can often be um, a bit disappointing. So what we'll often recommend is that um, herds that think they might have an E. coli problem to make sure they send uh, samples away that haven't been frozen. It's okay for them to be in the fridge for, for a couple of days, but uh, fresh samples are much better if you're attempting to uh, uh, establish a diagnosis of um, E. coli. So just a little hint for people. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's a great hint. And Rod, you mentioned about collecting samples if you're having problems with clinical cases as well, um, uh, collecting samples from them. It's, it, it probably would be important to highlight that it's, a, it's good practice to collect if you're having a bit of a run of clinical mastitis to collect the samples before treatment, not afterwards, if you're, if you're having poor cure rates. Is that, do you want to comment on that at all? Oh, oh for sure. I think, um, I think uh, milk cultures are an important part of understanding what's happening on, on the farm. So uh, farms should take uh, milk cultures on a reasonably regular basis. Um, certainly, I would recommend most farms take cultures at least uh, perhaps once a year, but uh, they might take them more often if they actually see a change in the sort of problem that they're actually seeing on that farm. And taking those cultures prior to treatment uh, those samples can be taken and they can put in, be put into the, the fridge or the freezer, as we discussed before. Um, one of the things there is if you've got a standard procedure of taking um, milk samples and putting them in the fridge or the freezer, it doesn't mean that you have to send them off, but they're there if you need to. One of the things uh, you find is that if you start to have a bit of a problem and then you've got to wait for more cases to actually take samples from, it's almost like you're wishing for more mastitis to try and find out what's causing the mastitis. Uh, so having those uh, samples just sitting there ready to go uh, is uh, very easy to do. Um, just sitting in the freezer, they're not costing you anything and um, they're ready to go if you actually need them. So yeah, I think um, milk cultures uh, are an important part of that. I guess uh, we've we see a lot of farmers quite disappointed in uh, in their milk cultures. They say, oh, yeah, I sent them off and um, nothing grew. Um, and I think that that's probably worth a little bit of a chat about that because um, nothing grew. Um, it might be that nothing grew or it might be that nothing useful grew. Um, so the two most common issues that uh, where people are disappointed with milk culture results is if they get... Uh, no growths, which means that uh, the laboratory is unable, unable to grow any bacteria from that sample. Um, and there can be a number of reasons why that might be. It might simply be that that little bit of milk that you took, um, and then when the laboratory takes its little, even tinier bit of milk from the little bit that you took, that there were just no bacteria in that sample. It also might be that um, by the time that sample got to the laboratory, something had uh, happened to it. Um, here in Northern Victoria, it gets pretty hot in summer. We have the Land Cruiser dashboard phenomenon, and that's when we take the milk samples and we'll run them into the vet clinic and they get tossed onto the dashboard of the Land Cruiser and uh, through the windscreen in Northern Victoria and through most of summer, I think uh, the, some of those uh, milk samples will get fried. One of the things that uh, some clinics are now doing are the uh, in-clinic uh, testing of samples, which reduces the amount of time that it takes to get samples to the laboratory and the risk from um, those samples being affected with um, transport. So that's a, another option that um, is, is tending to give some um, more useful sort of results and more timely. Um, the other part that disappoints farms is when um, they get uh, nothing useful grown. In other words, uh, what, grown, what has grown is uh, some contamination. And when results come back saying something like um, mixed skin growth, or mixed enteric bacteria. Well, that means exactly uh, what it uh, what it says. Mixed skin growth means that there's been some bugs off the skin, and that might be the the person taking the sample their skin, or it might be off the cow's skin, or uh, certainly mixed enteric uh, bacteria might be some some contamination. So a good technique in taking the samples is absolutely critical, uh, and that starts with uh, 
really effective uh, disinfection of the teat end with um, an alcohol soaked cotton bud or a, a teat wipe um, to remove all the dirt and fecal material before you actually um, take that sample. Because if there's any dirt or, or, or muck on the end of the teat, the milk is going to go through that into your sample bottle. And if on the way through it collects a little tiny fraction of that muck, when it goes to the laboratory, the laboratory will grow the muck, not your milk sample. So um, really important to uh, sterilise the teat end. And the other thing is uh, when you're taking samples <clears throat> is to remember that in a dairy, um, whilst you're milking and that, um, there's a lot of contamination happening. There's an aerosol in the air and the aerosol can be milk and um, urine and all sorts of things in an aerosol in the air. So when you take the sample, uh, the, the cap off the sample tube, don't turn it up so that the mouth of the cap is facing upwards because whatever's in the aerosol will land in that cap and then when you put the cap on the tube, you've just contaminated your sample with what's in the air. So always keep it facing down. And the other thing there is if you've got your sample tube directly below the teat when you're taking the sample and as you're stripping that teat, if you happen to just happen to scrape off just a little tiny little bit of skin or a bit of uh, muck on the teat, it's going to land in the sample. So that can contaminate your sample. A good technique is to hold the sample bottle on an angle, not quite, just a, a bit above horizontal, so that it's on an angle and turn the teat to squirt the milk into that sample so that you're avoiding uh, contamination coming off the Sorry, teat into the off. sample. Yeah. 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 Okay. Interesting. So, uh, we find that if people get that right, um, they get much more value out of their milk culture results. It's hot, very depressing to take 10 or a dozen milk samples, send them off and they all come back contaminated or no growth. Everyone gets very depressed about that. Yeah, absolutely. So once you've got your milk sample or your milk culture results back, Rod, that sort of will help to guide you as to, I mean, we spoke earlier in the podcast about prioritising what the best sort of course of action would be. That Those milk cultures are really fundamental to be able to make sure that any changes that you make us are really going to address the problem. Have I got that right? Yeah, I think um, uh, the way I have often spoken about milk cultures is to say to people, and this is because I'm a dinosaur, is uh, by saying that milk cultures are like the Melways. They're your roadmap to success. Um, they tell you actually where you're going because uh, knowing what the bacteria are, you'll broadly mastitis bacteria can be grouped in, into two groups. One is um, uh, environmental uh, bacteria and the other is uh, cow-associated or what we call contagious bacteria. And uh, the cow-associated or contagious bacteria really uh, mainly or only spread during the milking process, whereas the environmental bacteria, obviously the environment is the uh, major source of the infection. And there are one or two bugs that are actually uh, capable of, uh, of doing both. But guess what's important there? is to, to understand that uh, if we know what the bugs are, we know where it's coming from and how it's spreading. And so if we've got a, a, a cow-associated bacteria like the house strep egg or, or staphs, then we're really going to be looking very closely at the milking process uh, with much less uh, consequence of, uh, of the environment. Those bugs simply don't live in mud and uh, cows don't get those bacteria from mud. They get them from other cows during the milking process. Whereas if we've got environmental bacteria, we're going to take a lot of interest in what's happening in the environment and the interaction with cows and the environment and feed pads and lanes and all those sorts of things as well. So understanding what the bugs are helps us to uh, 
uh, work on the right areas and prioritise the areas to look at to help uh, control that mastitis. I guess one of the things there too is that people tend to take samples in the hope that it will tell them what to uh, treat mastitis with. And uh, I, think, I think a lot of people have been disappointed over the years in that um, we need to understand that uh, what what uh, happens in a laboratory in a perfectly sterile environment on a blood agar petri dish is not the same as on a real working dairy farm in a hugely inflamed udder um, in a cow that's uh, walking around and through all those um, uh, in, in, in those circumstances. So um, sometimes that can be disappointing. The milk cultures provide us with a good guide, but it is not an absolute prescription for this drug will kill this mastitis on your farm. Uh, so we, I certainly tend to think of milk cultures as being probably more important in understanding the cause of the mastitis, where it's coming from and how it's spreading, as opposed to trying to find a, a specific treatment for a farm. It, yeah. helps, but it's, it helps, but it's not a prescriptive um, test. Yeah, I think that's such a good point, um, Rod, and certainly something that I've heard um, another mastitis advisor say is you, you can't treat your way out of a mastitis problem. Um, and I think you, we've really touched on this today, talking about some of the preventative measures that farmers may take to reduce sort of mastitis headaches on farm. Um, one of the things that's really jumping out at me, um, Rod, that you've sort of highlighted is that it mastitis is complex um, and so simple things simple changes are, are not necessarily going to help you to get onto a, on top of a mastitis problem um, we spoke recently just about sort of how stressful it can be when you've got a lot of clinical cases or a high bulk milk cell count um, and how engaging an advisor um, can sort of just help kind of clear the air a little bit for you um, you had some interesting thoughts around that Rod I'm wondering if you might be able to share with our podcast listeners sort of your thoughts on that yeah, I think um, um, we quite often come across some um, uh, farms and, and, and people that are, are, are quite stressed about the, uh, that situation and have been um, <clears throat> struggling to deal with it. I think the, fir the first thing is that um, uh, one of the things that I, I find interesting is that um, in general, farmers uh, uh, and the farming community seem to think that um, it that they should be able to deal with all of these mastitis issues on their own and they should be able to get their cell count down and that they should be able to do that. And it, it's not always that easy. And because it's so complex, sometimes um, um, you need advice to help you get through those issues. The way, the way I think about that is similar to say um, an accountant. Now we, we can all, we could actually all do our own tax returns. It's uh, the forms are there and you can actually do your own tax return. But most of us get an accountant to do it. We get an accountant to do it firstly because the accountant knows exactly what they're doing. They're likely to, to do a, not miss anything and they're likely to get it right and give you the best possible advice. And that's exactly the same with, um, with uh, mastitis and that. And I think that uh, it isn't, uh, possible for every situation to be dealt with just by the farm themselves and that, um, that they should, it's normal to need advice to help with uh, some of those situations and that um, uh, don't feel that uh, you should be able to do it and you shouldn't need to get that advice. You get an accountant to do your tax, um, you perhaps should uh, consult an advisor to uh, help you with your milk quality and your mastitis control. So I think those are one important points. Another thing I think is that um, when people get stressed, we, it tends to uh, 
to, to become a, a consuming thing. And I've seen many farms where they've been very stressed about their mastitis issues and that and large numbers of clinical cases or very high cell counts or um, problems like a mycoplasma, et cetera, which uh, is very stressful for everybody. And one of the things that I always find is that um, uh, when you uh, get to a situation where you can sit down and map out and say, okay, this is what's happening. This is where we need to go to find out exactly what the causes are. And this is how you work through and deal this and set down and set out a plan. All of a sudden, having a plan just seems to take the stress away. And I've seen so many people, um, once they've got a plan, the stress seems to become less and they can concentrate on working hard and just working through the plan and they know exactly what they've got to do and when they've got to do it. And I, I know myself um, uh, when I was on my own farm that uh, seemed to go through drought year after drought year um, and having a plan was very important. Um, sometimes the, the plan might not be the right plan or it might be a plan that needs to change as you go through, but working to a plan is much better than just taking a stab in the dark um, all the time at trying this thing and trying that thing. So those would be my two things. Don't hesitate to get some advice um, and make sure you've got a plan that you can work to and work your way through that plan. That plan is likely to change as you, uh, as you progress down the path, but having a plan gives you a set, a set of actions to uh, keep working on and working through. Yeah, and that's great. So I think, um, Rod, this has been an amazing chat. Um, we talked about lots of different things. Um, we, we sort of, um, you know, I had some things in mind that I was going to talk to you about, but it's been such a good conversation. We've probably added a couple of extra bits in the mix. Uh, if I can just perhaps summarise and just bounce it off you and, and see. So what we really talked about is that um, mastitis is, is complex. And so if you're having difficulty, whether it's with lots of clinical cases, whether it's with high cell counts or whether it's with cows that aren't curing, um, it's complex and simple fixes are unlikely to resolve the problem. There's a couple of key things that you can do of which um, getting your, your post-milking teat disinfection. So after the cups come off, getting that right with the right concentration and getting good coverage on the teats is just about one of the most fundamental things that you can do. Um, but in terms of getting on top of issues, often it needs, first of all, to identify what the problem is by getting some good milk cultures, stepping through the investigation process and then coming up with a plan. And often that'll need sort of the support of a, you know, an experienced um, milk quality advisor. Have I summed that up reasonably well, do you think, Rod, or any other comments to add? No, I think you've summed that, uh, that up really well. There's a, a nice, neat process and Countdown and Dairy Australia have provided us with the tools and techniques of uh, being able to, to look at those things and make those assessments um, <clears throat> uh, on the farm and in the dairy. And uh, that's a, a good pathway to take. Awesome. All right. Well, I might wrap it up there, Rod, and just thank you so much um, for your time and your insights. Um, you've got a massive amount of experience and certainly you've been a mentor to me, um, you know, in my career. So I really appreciate um, you jumping on and, and sharing some of your knowledge and expertise with the listeners. Um, if anyone is having um, issues or would like to improve their milk quality or mastitis, um, I'd encourage you to jump on the Dairy Australia website, www.dairyaustralia.com.au.
forward slash countdown and you'll find on that page um, a list of um, Dairy Australia trained countdown advisors, um, some of the resources that Rod mentioned, um, but also some of our training programs that we also offer, um, such as Cups On, Cups Off um, and, and others as well, um, which may help to, to give you some additional tips and tricks in terms of um, yeah, getting to the, to the place where you really want to be. So thank you again, Rod, very much for your time. We really appreciate it. And um, yeah, good luck with uh, your milk quality, everybody, and, and hope to see um, lots of premium milk being produced across the country this year. Thanks, Rod. Thanks, Steph. Thanks to Steph and Rod for shedding some light on the tricky business of mastitis control. Don't forget that you can check out this year's Milk Quality Award winners at dairyaustralia.com.au. The awards recognise farmers who produce the nation's best milk based on bulk milk cell count. Gold awards recognise the top 100 dairy farmers nationwide for milk quality, while silver awards are given to the top 5% of producers. Just to show what a difference it can make to your business, a farmer milking 300 cows who lowers their bulk milk cell count from 300,000 to 200,000 cells could be better off to the tune of over $35,000 per year. That's something well worth striving for. And just to reiterate what Steph said, if you want more information on any of these topics, go to dairyaustralia.com.au forward slash countdown. That's it for this episode. Congratulations to all the Milk Quality Award winners. And don't forget, you can find all dairy pods at SoundCloud or subscribe at Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and bye for now.